Late Friday night, the day after Thanksgiving, November 28, 1958, Walcott, Kansas. 18-year-old University of Kansas sophomore Lowell Lee Andrews calls the Wyandotte County Sheriff's Office. He reports that there has been a burglary at his family's farmhouse near the tiny Walcott neighborhood of Kansas City, Kansas. In the house, he has found his mother, father, and sister all dead. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings. Give unsolicited advice and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. What I say on this podcast is strictly my own opinion. The murder this week is an open and shut case no doubt who did it. What makes this case fascinating to me, though, is why it happened and the important issues raised by the case. Okay, enough talking about me. Let's talk about murder. William Lowell Andrews, called Lowell by everybody, is born on the 23rd of January, 1908, in Jacksonville, a tiny town in north-central Missouri. From what I could find, he's an ordinary Midwestern guy who mostly farms. In 1940, when he registers for the draft, he's 32, 5 foot 10, 195 pounds, brown hair, blue eyes. Average. The 1940 census says that he only went as far as the ninth grade in high school. His wife is Opal Bernice Andrews. She's born the 19th of September, 1916, in Missouri. So she's eight years younger than her husband. Opal's maiden name is Hallie, H-A-L-L-E-Y. 
She's a high school graduate. Lowell and Opal marry the 5th of September, 1937. Opal seems to be a typical housewife. If you look her up on Ancestry.com, there's a pretty picture of a quilt with her name embroidered on it. That brings back memories for me of quilting bees at my grandmother's house. If you're not familiar with quilting bees, they are mainly social gatherings around a quilt frame. The idea is that everyone works on the quilt while they chat. Any work that gets done is usually incidental to the socializing. A lot of times the quilts were for special occasions, maybe a new baby or a wedding, sometimes for a farewell or a welcome. Often, whoever stitched a particular area of the quilt would embroider her name on it. Looking at that picture, I can see Opal sitting around with her friends, gossiping and stitching. Very 50s Middle America. Lowell and Opal have a daughter, Jenny Marie, on October 9, 1938, and a son, Lowell Lee, two years later, on September 21, 1940. There are pictures of the Andrews family online, not many, but a few. They look so perfectly normal, and they look very much alike. Jenny especially looks just like her mother, solid, pleasant-looking, with almost the same glasses on all of them, those dark-framed 50s glasses like Buddy Holly wore. In 1958, the Andrews all live on a 200-acre farm in rural Wyandotte County, Kansas. Wyandotte County is a large county in Kansas with a population of over 100,000. The city of Kansas City, Kansas is located within Wyandotte County. This area of the country is a little confusing because the Missouri River flows through the middle of it and divides the area into two different states, Missouri and Kansas. Kansas City, Missouri is much larger than Kansas City, Kansas, maybe half a million people. The whole Kansas City metro area includes about two million people, but it's broken into all kinds of little cities and villages that all run together. If you drive around the Kansas City area, you go from urban parts to suburbs to actual working farms, all within minutes of each other. The Andrews Farm is quite a ways west of the urban part of Kansas City, Kansas, definitely well into the countryside, but still not a very long drive into town. The Andrews Farmhouse isn't there anymore, but if you know the area, where it was located is not far from Lakeside Speedway, just off Interstate 435. The address is 6040 Walcott Drive. Lowell is 50 years old in 1958. 
He works as a mechanic for Transworld Airlines, TWA, and his union is on strike in November. Opal, now 42, is a homemaker and farm wife. The children are both in college. Their daughter, Jenny Marie, 20, attends Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma, which is not too far from Oklahoma City. In the 50s, that's probably a good eight-hour drive or bus ride from her home. She is majoring in home economics. One of her professors will later relate that Jenny told her she was very excited about going home for Thanksgiving and anxious to see her family. Their son, who is called by his middle name Lee, is 18 years old. He attends the University of Kansas, which is in Lawrence, only about an hour or so from home. He lives in a rooming house in Lawrence. I bet, like most college students who live that close to home, he probably comes home most weekends to eat mom's home-cooked meals and to get laundry done. Lee is majoring in zoology and plays bassoon in the University of Kansas Orchestra. Listeners, I recently looked at the statistics that Blueberry.com provides for me, and part of what it shows is the country where Prison City Murders listeners are. To my surprise, some of you are not in the United States. So, I will try to do better at explaining a little when I get off into strictly American stuff, like Thanksgiving Day. Although I'm not going to go all crazy conscientious and start converting to the metric system and Celsius temperatures. You're on your own for that part. For those of you who aren't familiar, Thanksgiving Day is a big holiday in the U.S. It commemorates a feast held at the Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts by early European settlers. They were celebrating a bountiful harvest that came after some very hard times they had managed to survive. Thanksgiving Day is always celebrated on the third Thursday of November. In 1958, it's on the 27th of November. Nowadays, it's a time for families to gather and feast on huge amounts of turkey and pumpkin pie and other traditional family foods. Most families have a large midday meal, eat themselves into a stupor, and fall asleep watching football. That's American Tackle Football on TV. In 1958, I don't know if there would have been football games on TV that day or at all. I was alive then, and I'm from Texas, where football is the state religion. 
My sense is that televised football became a huge deal, more like in the 60s and 70s. However, if there was a bitter rivalry, like between state schools or the traditional Army-Navy game, for example, those games used to always be played on Thanksgiving. Nowadays, because of TV, not so much. Sorry to get off track. Back to the Andrews Thanksgiving. It's not in any of the information I found, but my guess would be that the kids were home on Wednesday. I started college in 1969, and we still had classes on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. By now, school break for Thanksgiving starts much earlier, some places even the weekend before. So unless they skip class, students didn't usually get home until right before Thanksgiving. In 1958, with the airlines down because of the strikes, my guess is lots of college students didn't even make it home for Thanksgiving that year. Sorry, off the subject again. 1958, Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. Usually people celebrate with family and friends at Thanksgiving. I would have expected the Andrews family to go to a relative's house, or invite a bunch of people over. But it's reported that the weather was very cold and snowy that Thanksgiving, so perhaps they thought it would just be easier to stay near home. By all accounts, the family, just the four of them, spend a quiet, cozy Thanksgiving day hunkered down at home together. Big group or small group, Thanksgiving dinner can be stressful. Getting into arguments with relatives, hurting people's feelings at Thanksgiving is a staple of American movies and TV shows. In this case, we will just have to use our imaginations about that day. I'll speculate wildly later on how the Andrews family spent that Thanksgiving. The family spends the next wintry day, Friday, the 28th of November, at home. Lee stays in his room reading The Brothers Karamazov, a grim Russian novel. Oh, wait. Grim and Russian is redundant. All Russian novels are grim. About a son who kills his terrible father so he can get his inheritance. Spoiler alert, in light of what happens in our story, that choice of reading is ironic. I don't know if Lee was required to read it for a class or if he just felt like reading it that day. He is something of a loner who excels in school and loves books. It's reported that he is a sophomore in college, that is, in his second year at the university. And if that's true, then he is a year ahead of most college students. In the U.S., following the typical academic schedule, most people graduate high school in May at the age of 18 or turn 18 soon after that. 
So if he's 18 and already a sophomore, he must have either started school a year earlier than most or did what we would call skip a grade. Sometimes gifted students academically do this. From all accounts, Lee was a very bright student. One of the newspapers quotes a family friend. He was a brain. He was more interested in books than friends. He wasn't popular and had a know-it-all personality. From looking at his high school yearbook, Washington High School in Kansas City, Kansas, I think that might be pretty accurate. He's not involved in any sports, but he is in school band and the drama club. Junior year, he has a major role in the school play. They performed Ayn Rand's play the night of January 16th. I remember doing that play in high school. I, too, was a drama nerd. The amateur version of that play was very popular in high schools because there were no royalties to pay, and it only required one simple set, a courtroom, and that was easy for any high school to do. The play dates from, I think, 1930-something, and it's about the trial of a woman who may or may not have killed her millionaire boss. I say may or may not because the gimmick of the play was that the ending was determined by the audience. There were two different endings depending on the verdict rendered by a vote of the audience. Lee's character was the judge in the trial. Ironic. Lee is a hulking kid. Six foot two and 260 pounds, and unsmiling and bespeckled in every picture. He towers over everybody in the school pictures. Since I'm from Texas, that size makes me think of football, too. Personal story, my son, who, by the way, turned out very well, although we had our doubts as he was growing up, never showed any interest in sports or academics or pretty much anything except Star Wars and computer games. Until one day, he came home and announced he was going out for football in high school. Well, we warned him that most kids on high school football teams start playing when they're eight. But it was a small school, and he was tall, and there was a wonderful coach there who gave him a chance. Junior year, didn't get many playing minutes, but the coach encouraged him to keep at it, and being on that team did wonders for his self-confidence. He was in the high school choir. We never knew he could sing before that. He started a play. We never knew he could act. And really, he just blossomed. Academics were still problematic, but 
He was more motivated than usual because he had to keep his grade point up to stay eligible for football. Anyway, for that reason, I'm a big proponent of team sports and other activities for kids. Washington High School wasn't a very big school. With just his size, Lowell Lee Andrews would have been an asset to the football team. Wishful thinking, maybe our story could have had a different ending if Lee had played football. But he didn't, and he turned out to be the kind of teen who spends the day after Thanksgiving at home alone reading the brother's Karamazov. The family has supper together that Friday night. Lee shaves, puts on a suit, and tells his family that he has forgotten something in Lawrence, and he needs to go back and get it. He plans to take in a movie before he comes back home. The rest of the family settles in to watch TV in the living room. Lee drives back to the home of Mrs. Harry Sparks, where he has been renting a room for the semester. The house is located at 1305 Tennessee Street, and is still there. 2,000 square feet, two-story, with a big front porch. Looks like it was built in the early 1900s, maybe? A few blocks east of the football stadium in Lawrence. There he speaks with Mrs. Frank Midori and fellow student who also rooms there, Robert Jacks. Robert said, As far as I could tell, there was nothing strange in his manner. We talked together in the hallway. He said he had to do his English theme at home and had to get his typewriter. Mrs. Midori said of Lee, He seemed a perfectly normal boy, quiet, and never seemed to be in any trouble. Lee retrieves his typewriter and then goes to the movie Mardi Gras, a Pat Boone movie, at the Granada Theater on Massachusetts Street. Mass Street is the main drag in Lawrence. The Granada is still there. It's a trendy event venue now, mostly live music. They've actually played host to Marilyn Manson and Creed. Even I've heard of them. After the movie, Lee drives back home. He notices a window open in the house and all the lights on, even though it's after midnight. The family's pet Pekingese dog is running around outside. He thinks all this is odd, but goes on into the house. Then he sees blood on the floor and signs that the house has been ransacked. When he gets to the living room, he finds his mother and sister lying dead on the floor in their own blood. In the kitchen, his father also lies dead, shot multiple times. He immediately calls the sheriff's office and waits outside with the dog until they get there. Sheriff's deputies arrive at about 1 a.m. November 29, 1958, and survey the murder scene. The coroner is called. He finds Opal's body in the living room. She lies on her back and has been shot four times. Jenny has been shot three times and lies face down on the other side of the living room. 
Lowell's body is in the kitchen shot multiple times. It appears that he was not initially shot fatally and may have tried to flee. It will be determined later that Lowell was ultimately shot 18 times. Lee talks with officers and tells them about his trip to Lawrence. He denies any knowledge of the crimes and states that the murders must have been committed by a burglar. When told that he will be given a test to check whether he had fired a gun recently, he told officers that he had tried to shoot a hawk near the house Friday afternoon. In 1958, the test would have been a paraffin test. That's just like it sounds. They took melted wax and put it on the subject's hands. When it hardened, they peeled it off, applied some chemicals, and watched for little blue specks that were supposed to show that the suspect had recently fired a gun. Over the years, much better tests have been developed. However, according to crime-scene-investigator.net, even when gunshot residue, GSR, tests are positive, the results are almost always challenged in court, usually with something like, all a positive GSR test proves is that somewhere, sometime, the subject came in contact with a gun or a bullet or somebody who might have fired a gun somewhere sometime. So it really doesn't prove much. In this case, Lee's test was undoubtedly positive, but he did present a plausible explanation for that. Most of the news reports portray Lee as unusually calm and unconcerned about the murders, but the court documents tell a slightly different story. Quote, During the interview with police, Andrews wept on one or more occasions and did not appear unconcerned. Unquote. The coroner, however, reports Lee responds, I don't care, when asked what he would like the coroner's office to do with the bodies when the autopsies are completed. Listeners, that does sound very cold, but Lee is only 18 years old. He could be in some kind of shock. Maybe what he means is, I don't know. I'm still processing all this. The Andrews family minister is called to meet with Lee at the police station. This is the Reverend V.C. Damron of the Grandview, Missouri Baptist Church, where the Andrews regularly attend services. V.C. has known the family since before the children were born. He is a close friend of Lowell and Opal. He rushes to Lee's side. When he asks if he can speak to Lee in private, the county attorney says, yes, of course. 
he is not accused of anything, and we certainly don't know whether he has had anything to do with this or not. But talk to him, and any information he can tell us relative to this would certainly be helpful. Damron will later testify about what happens when he talks with Lee. I went in there. I advised him. I was there not only as his minister, but as his friend. And we first talked about Thanksgiving, his vacation, and school, and a few remarks like that. And then I expressed my regrets at what had happened out there. And I sympathized with him. And I told him that I knew he was deeply concerned about what had happened and that he was just as anxious as I and others to find out who were the guilty parties. And I said, Now, knowing you all your life, Lee, and your parents, I cannot believe that you had any part in this crime. But there is some question in the minds of the officers as to the fact that maybe you did have something to do with it. And I am sure that you wouldn't object to taking a lie detector test in order to establish your innocence so that the officers can get busy and find the guilty party. And I said, Lee, you didn't do this, did you? And it was then that he said he did. Well, I asked him why, and he told me the story. He was seemingly purging his soul of what he had done, and he was talking to me not only as a minister, but as a friend, almost a member of the family. This is what Lee says happened in his confession. He later will put all this down in a signed confession for the police. And later he tells more about what happened to a psychiatrist. All of his confessions are quite consistent. At about 7 p.m., Lee retrieved a 22 caliber rifle and a Luger pistol from the hall closet. Listeners, it's a farm in Kansas in the 50s. It would be quite common to have guns in the house. Lee found the family in the living room watching TV. He turned on the overhead light and shot them. His father wasn't immediately killed, and he either crawled or staggered trying to get out of the living room. Then Lee emptied both guns into his father, taking time to reload. Chilling, listeners. This is his own mom and sister and dad. Definitely overkill in his father's case, which could indicate a particular rage against his father. But 
as I think about it, I think it's more likely a sort of panic reaction. Like when you keep stomping on a bug, even after you've smashed it completely flat. After the murders, Lee removed the screen from a window and propped the window open, left some drawers open, and took some stuff from the house, trying to make it look like the house had been burglarized. Then he went to Lawrence, as he had previously told police. In Lawrence, he dismantled the guns and disposed of them by dropping them off the Caw River Bridge. Lee will later help, <coughs> excuse me, help police recover some of the gun parts by showing them where he dropped them in the river. Depending on which news story you read, he either did that before he got to the rooming house or after the movie. I think I would have done it after the movie because I would think fewer people would be around. But who knows? It would have been dark in either case. And Lawrence is kind of a ghost town when the KU students are on break. Lee says that he killed the family for money. As the only surviving member of the little family, he expected to get $1,800 in insurance money and also inherit the 200-acre farm. Quote, It wasn't a case where they wouldn't give me what I want. It was a case where they couldn't. I wanted a sports car, and I wanted a million dollars, too. Unquote. He flatly states that he feels no remorse or guilt. In fact, he says, I don't feel anything. When asked how he felt while he was killing his family, he says, I didn't feel anything about it. The time came and I was doing what I had to do. That's all there was to it. Reverend Damron was distraught and shocked. Quote, I was with the boy all night, and I still can't believe it. What do you think when your best friend is killed by his own son? They were a perfect family. The parents were proud of their children. You could see the elation when they spoke of them. The children were fond of their parents. The boy cherished them, loved them. That's the way it looked. Lowell was my best friend. I know that if there had been anything at all troubling him, any doubts about his son, he would have confided in me. There just wasn't any trouble, no reason for the shooting, unquote. The Lee Andrews defense team quickly settles on an insanity defense. It's their only course of action. They have him examined extensively at the famous Menninger Clinic in Topeka. The Menningers are a very interesting family. They were a family of physicians, well-renowned pioneers in mental health treatments during the first half of the 20th century and, and even up to now. 
Carl Manager's best-selling book, The Human Mind, from 1930, was groundbreaking. Manager presents a very optimistic view that psychiatric problems are treatable on a par with the way medicine scientifically treats medical problems. Later in life, Dr. Menninger becomes somewhat controversial. His 1966 book on prison reform was called The Crime of Punishment, and it was hotly debated in the 60s and 70s. Listeners, I had to read this book in college. I'll give you my take on it, which hasn't changed much over the years. I thought the main idea Manager presents is that criminal behavior is a mental illness that is treatable. Now, I absolutely support studying criminal behavior and the psychological reasons for it. That's a major part of the fascination with true crime for me. What leads to a human being committing a murder? The problem I have is with the treatable part. Here's a really oversimplified, made-up example to illustrate what I'm getting at. Suppose I'm a therapist, and I have an inpatient with obsessive-compulsive disorder showing the symptom that she has to wash her hands a hundred times a day. After I treat her for a long time, I professionally determine that my patient is fine now, and she can go live on her own. And I think that because she's no longer washing her hands a hundred times a day, so she's released. Well, if she's not cured and she relapses, it's not likely that anyone else will be harmed by her behavior. Maybe just a higher water bill. But if my patient's symptom is shooting people, like Lee Andrews, that's a whole different issue. Lee's psychiatrist was Dr. Joseph Satin, S-A-T-T-E-N, who had a particular interest in cases like the Andrews case. He called them sudden murders, those in which the motive is flimsy at best, and the murderer appears perfectly sane both before and after the crime. Joseph Satin will also study Dick Hickok and Perry Smith, the convicted killers of the Clutter family, made famous by Truman Capote's book In Cold Blood. Satin testified for the defense. According to court documents, quote, In Dr. Satin's opinion, defendant is suffering from schizophrenia, simple type. That means there is a split between defendant's thinking and feeling. He understood the nature of his acts 
and that they were prohibited by law, and that he was subject to punishment. On the other hand, the doctor was of the opinion that defendant felt no emotions whatsoever, that he considered himself to be the most important person in the world, that in his own private withdrawn world, it is just as right morally to kill a person or a mother as to kill an animal or a fly. It may be noted that at least one of the state's psychiatrists found the defendant's emotions blunted. And the minister testified, defendant never showed sorrow or remorse as a result of the death of his family, unquote. So in Dr. Satin's and other psychiatrists' opinions, Lee Andrews does exhibit signs of mental illness. However, this is not what gets a defendant found not guilty by reason of insanity legally. The legal standard for that is the McNaughton Rules, named after Daniel McNaughton, who accidentally killed Prime Minister Robert Peel's secretary, thinking he was killing the Prime Minister. McNaughton was clearly insane, and he was acquitted at trial. The reaction to the acquittal led to the formulation of what are called the McNaughton Rules, and they're not very long. I'll just read them. Every man is presumed to be sane, and that to establish defense on the ground of insanity, it must be clearly proved that, at the time of the committing of the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defect of reason, from disease of mind, and not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if he did know it, that he did not know he was doing what was wrong. This is often summed up with, did the defendant know right from wrong at the time of the crime? The problem is that the devil is in the details, and the details have been argued over in the courts for decades. Plus, different states have different laws concerning the insanity defense, and different courts have interpreted pertinent statutes differently. So it sounds simple, but it's very complicated. You hear about insanity defenses being attempted a lot, but they are hardly ever successful. When they do succeed, there's almost always a long, long history of obvious psychiatric problems that the defense can present to the court. This is not the case for Lee Andrews. At trial, the prosecution presents his confessions. The defense presents psychiatrists. The jury finds him guilty of first-degree murder. He is sentenced to death. As I've said before, the Leavenworth, Kansas area where this podcast originates is the location of several prisons, 
Lansing, Kansas borders Leavenworth on the south side. Lansing Correctional Facility is there. It's called LCF for short. In the past, LCF was the Kansas State Prison, KSP. If you've seen the movie In Cold Blood, and I highly recommend that you watch it, it's that really terrible looking prison. In 1958, Death Row for Kansas is at Lansing. The method of execution is hanging. When Hickok and Smith, who are convicted of the Clutter family murders, arrive on death row at Lansing later, they will get to know Lee and the other death row inmates. There are passages in the book in Cold Blood about Andrews. There's also a scene in the movie that portrays Lee shuffling off to the gallows. Lee Andrews won't be executed until November 30th, 1962, four years after the murders. He becomes something of a cause celebre in the meantime for prison reform and anti-death penalty activists. There are legal appeals on his behalf. There's an attempt to suppress his confessions. If you remember, Lee first confessed to Reverend Damron the night of the murders. There is legal privilege attached to communications with priests and ministers, just like with lawyers and doctors and other counselors. According to Wikipedia, confessional privilege is a rule of evidence that forbids the inquiry into the content or even existence of certain communications between clergy and church members. Again, I'm not an expert, but my understanding of this privilege or confidentiality is that the minister could have never said anything about what Lee told him. And furthermore, Lee could have forbidden Reverend Damron from ever saying anything. Supreme Court Justice Warren Berger wrote, quote, The clergy privilege is rooted in the imperative need for confidence and trust. The privilege recognizes the human need to disclose to a spiritual counselor in total and absolute confidence what are believed to be flawed acts or thoughts and to receive consolations and guidance in return, unquote. So there is a very good reason for privilege, namely no one would want to talk to lawyers or ministers or doctors or even therapists if what they said might end up in court. I believe there can be an exception in the case of threats of violence, but I don't think it applies to violence that has already taken place. There's a famous movie 
I Confess with Montgomery Clift from the 50s, I think. It's about a priest who refuses to break the seal of the confessional even when he is accused of the murder that was committed by the murderer who confessed it to him. It's a very good movie. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I remember Montgomery Cliff sweating a lot in it and looking very conflicted. I thought about what I might have done in Reverend Dameron's shoes. I think I would be conflicted. I would strongly counsel Lee to stop talking and get an attorney. And that might be what happened. And Lee was just so adamant that he wanted to get it over with and confess. But I'm not sure we'll ever know. The thing is, there's no talk about privilege in the Anders case. Reverend Dameron testifies at Lee's trial with no objections from the defense. Plus, the defense, trying to prove insanity, puts Dr. Satin, Lee's psychiatrist, on the stand, and he talks about his sessions with Lee. The basis of the appeal is that the boy was coerced to confess, but the court rules, quote, An objective reading of the record indicates that the minister was present in the sheriff's office not as a pretended friend, as the petitioner asserts, but as a friend who was almost a member of the family and who sought to give spiritual as well as moral comfort and assistance to a young man whose entire family had just been murdered. In no respect was the Reverend Dameron's conduct in violation of his professional and Christian duties, nor did he breach his trust relationship with the petitioner. He stood by him as a friend. The record clearly demonstrates that he exerted no coercion, psychological or otherwise. Unquote. For his part, Lee Andrews doesn't participate much in these efforts to get him off death row. By all accounts, he seems resigned to his fate, almost like he expects to be put to death and doesn't really care much. I did hear some secondhand accounts of Lee on death row. People who heard people. Locals who worked at the state prison during that time. He behaved there exactly the way he behaved before the murders. Bookish, unemotional, quiet, well-mannered, not very sociable. His mother's sister and her husband visited him regularly until his death. They never spoke about this publicly, but I wonder if they weren't just as baffled about him and about what happened as everybody else was. For his last meal, Lee feasted on two fried chickens, mashed potatoes, green beans, and pie. The warden asked if he had any last words, and he said no, and calmly went to his death, 
on November 30, 1958. Some of the articles of that day say that it was a difficult hanging because Lee was such a big guy. But there's another article that says he had slimmed down to about 180 pounds while he was in prison. Okay, listeners, now it's time to wildly speculate. That's the story of Lowell Lee Andrews and the slaughter of his family over 60 years ago. It's a deceptively simple case on the surface, but it causes you to think about some complicated issues. Criminal responsibility, punishment, justice, insanity, motivation. One reason I think I'm so fascinated by stories of murders is that I keep trying to understand how someone crosses a line and becomes a murderer. I've contemplated this case for a while, and all I can come up with is that Lowell Leanders, the murderer, is an enigma. It's too hard to wrap your head around this model student just killing his own family. We've heard the reverend. They were a perfect family. One of the neighbors was famously quoted saying, he was the nicest boy in Walcott. It's terrifying to think that murderers can be so close to you, maybe even in your own home, and you don't have any idea. When I talked about the case with my sister, she just shook her head and said, it almost makes you wonder if demons might actually exist. How's that for wild speculation? How did Lowell Lee Andrews come to the decision that he had to murder his family? He says it was for money, but that seems inadequate somehow. But maybe that's because we can't see into his brain. He says he was doing what he had to do. Why was that what he had to do? I don't have a satisfactory answer, but let's at least analyze a little more. One question to think about is whether the murder was planned well in advance or was the result of a spur-of-the-moment impulse precipitated by maybe something like a fight or an argument. As far as the events of the murder, we mainly have Lee's confessions about what happened that night at the house. He's definitely the one who did the shootings. The fact that he showed the police where to pull the gun parts out of the river makes that a certainty to me. I think he acted alone because he doesn't have any friends. He's a loner. As to his efforts to cover up the crime by going to Lawrence, that all seems to check out with what the witnesses say. However, he may not be telling the whole truth about what happened that Thanksgiving weekend. He says he deliberately and calmly killed his parents and then took steps to make it look like a burglary. Maybe not. There are 
no signs of a big physical fight in the house, but there may have been some huge argument. There are reports in some of the news articles that Lee had recently flunked a sociology class. Really? From my experience, sociology was your basic do the reading, write some papers, and show up for exams kind of class. Interesting subject, but you almost have to purposely try to fail classes like that. Plus, the semester isn't over in November. I've seen people turn midterm failing grades into passing by the end of the year. A good student like Lee could pull out a passing grade. Maybe he just didn't want to. I can only speculate about what was going on with him. Sometimes students who are at the top of their class in small high schools face a real shock when they get to a university. Very suddenly, they can find out they are not nearly as smart as they think they are. There's actually a lot of concern about the mental health of college students, especially in their first two years. Suicide is a major cause of death for people of college age. I think it's possible that this fear of failure might have been part of what was going on with Lee. Another factor might be financial. Lee gives us that as the motive. And I think it's interesting that he points out how even what he would inherit was not very much. I only found this in one article, but there was a report that Lee's father gave him an allowance for school, and he had already gone through that. So he still had to pay to get through December in Lawrence. My guess would be that he would need to pay rent the very next week and didn't have the money to do that. His father's on strike, so maybe money was a real problem for the Andrews family. Maybe there's a big blow-up when Lee asks his dad for more money. Lee stews about that for a while and then kills his family. Possibly, but I don't really think so. There are no reports of abuse in the home. Now, this is the 50s, and things like that were kept behind closed doors. Keeping your problems to yourself was pretty much the only way to go. Lots of repression. It sounds like the parents were proud of their children, but not to the point they wouldn't still love and accept them if they had some problems. Neither of the parents even went to college. Say the worst happens and Lee flunks out. Lowell and Opal would have been disappointed, sure, but I think they would have encouraged their only son. Could have helped out on the farm for a while, maybe. The United States drafts young men into the military in 1958, so he might have had to go in the service, but there isn't a war going on. Elvis Presley himself 
has just been drafted and is in the army in 1958. Of course, I'm trying to apply the way I think to somebody I really don't understand. So I'll try to stop that. Here's what I really think happened. Lee didn't like his life. Nobody at KU thinks he's the genius he thinks he is. Being a brain is the only identity he's ever had, and that's not working out anymore. I'm having a hard time figuring out why he might be out of money. You'd think if it was drinking or drugs or gambling or prostitutes, somebody would have noticed that and told reporters. But he's apparently wasting his money on something. Maybe it's just as simple as he didn't budget for school supplies and living expenses the way he should have. At any rate, Lee Andrews wants out of his life for some reason. But he doesn't want to face not being seen as the perfect, brilliant son. If he's thinking like that, then there are advantages to removing his family from his life. I believe he planned the crime for a while and waited until Thanksgiving because he knew his sister would be home and he could kill the whole family at once. That way, he inherits everything, including all the sympathy and support from his family, friends, and the community. Who is going to expect a boy whose family has just been murdered to go right back to school? Nobody. Failures erased. Time and money and space to do exactly what he wants to do. Lee Andrews was one of those people who just doesn't feel things the way other people do. Not sure what an accurate term for this is. Maybe psychopath or sociopath. In the court documents for this case, they said his emotions were blunted. And people keep saying... Lee didn't seem to care about anything. He was unconcerned. Instinctively, I think they realized Lowell Lee Andrews just didn't have normal human emotions as we understand them. I've wondered about people like that. They've got to know they're different from other people. I wonder if sometimes... They feel like that makes them superior. Or maybe sometimes they wish they could feel things the way other people do. I don't know, and it's really creepy to go there mentally. Whatever the particular pathology of Lee's brain, at the end of the day, he is a person who can think long and hard about murdering his family and still go through with it. That's scary. And he could have gotten away with it. Consider what might have happened if Lee Andrews had not confessed. Earlier that year, Charles Starkweather and his 14-year-old girlfriend famously went on a killing spree in Nebraska. I think if Lee 
could have acted a little more upset about the murders and not confessed. The case might have gone cold and ultimately been blamed on some random unknown killers. They never would have found the gun parts if he hadn't showed the police where he dropped them in the river. So why did he confess? For me, that's the most inexplicable part of this case. I would expect the psychopath I think Andrews is to just brazen it out to the end, never admitting anything. I wish I could ask him about that, but I'm not sure he could explain it either. At the time, it was just what he felt he wanted to do. Maybe that was simply tell everybody what he did and let them try to figure it all out. Okay, listeners, I've gone on in circles long enough. If you have any ideas on what we've talked about, I'd love to hear them. So I can sleep tonight. I will propose one last idea. Maybe there was a tiny bit of conscience in lowly Andrews that worked on him just enough that he decided to confess and accept the consequences of what he did. Maybe he had a spark of humanity that hoped someone could help him understand why he was the way he was. William Lowell, Opa Bernice, and Jenny Marie Andrews were buried together at Mount Salem Cemetery in Macon County, Missouri. You can see pictures of their graves on findagrave.com and send them virtual flowers if you'd like to. To the surprise of many, Lee's aunt and uncle had his body interred in the same cemetery as his parents and sister with the inscription simply, Son. Listeners, I posted the links to the sources used for this episode in the show notes. There were lots of articles from the time of the murders, but my favorite is a retrospective written in 2010 for the New York Daily News by David J. Krajicek, maybe, C-R-K-R-A-J-I-C-E-K, Krajicek. If you just Google Lowell Lee Andrews, it's one of the first articles that comes up. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review. Even critical feedback is appreciated. You can email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the podcast website, Prison City Murders, all one word, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, please don't murder anybody. 
I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.